I once saw a preacher do this illustration where he told the congregation that he had in his hand a $20 bill and then asked for a volunteer who believed him. Few hands went up and he picked one of those that raised their hands and then said to that volunteer, I am about to destroy your faith. With that, the preacher opened up his hand and revealed that he indeed was holding a $20 bill. The speaker then explained, The reason I can say that I am destroying your faith is that now you know that I hold the bill. You see the bill, and you no longer have to have faith anymore. The preacher also rewarded the volunteer by giving them the $20 bill. Fortunately, I am pre-recording this, so I can just put this right back in my pocket. The preacher went on to conclude, faith is required only when we have doubts. When we do not know for sure, when knowledge comes, faith is no more. Have you ever thought about how the presence of doubt is part of your faith journey with Christ? We may get the impression from our series in the Gospel of Mark so far that doubt and faith are mutually exclusive. Like when Jesus tells the disciples after he calms the storm back in chapter 4, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Or when we read in Mark chapter 6, verse 6, that Jesus could not do miracles in his hometown because of the lack of faith that people had there. We may conclude from such verses and other uh, verses in Scripture that belief and unbelief are mutually exclusive. You either have faith or you don't. But I'd like to suggest that faith and doubt are not mutually exclusive. In fact, we see from a father in this story today, from a father's plea, that that is sometimes the reality that we face. Let's get right into the text. Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large, large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing about with them? He asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that, was, that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth gnashes his teeth and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied. How long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered. It has often thrown him into fire and water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit, 
You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. I'd like to draw your attention right off the bat to that statement from the Father immediately made after Jesus says, everything is possible for one who believes. I do believe, Father said. Help me overcome my unbelief. Faith and doubt, trust and uncertainty, belief and unbelief existing simultaneously. I'm sure it wouldn't be far-fetched for me to assume that many of you listening today have been there. I know I have. That's something I struggle with on a weekly basis with what I'm doing right now, preaching. Without fail, every week since I started pastoring, I find myself thinking and praying the same thing. Lord, how in the world can we do another one of those next week? Lord, I feel drained. I feel empty. I'm already running short on time. I'm not feeling inspired this week. Somehow you brought it all together in spite of me last week and the week before that and before that, but it sure seems impossible this week. Without fail, every week I find myself believing with unbelief. Ever been there? Maybe you have been there with responsibilities you're in charge with uh, at work or the things you have to get done as a student at school or when you sit down to pay bills, that's the feeling you get. Or I'm sure that many of you feel that way for those of you that have had the kind of journey that this father and this son has in this story where you or someone you love has been tormented by a debilitating illness or a fierce spiritual battle and it's left you battered and bruised and exhausted and feeling like your faith is hanging on by just a thread. And it's left you believing with unbelief. But this father in Mark 9 teaches us that that is not unusual. And just as important, he teaches us to still come to Jesus in those moments and ask, help my unbelief. So family, the Lord put it on my heart this week to just bring you a, a simple message today about how we can come to Jesus and let him help us with our unbelief. In fact, I think this story shows at least three ways. We can allow Jesus to help our unbelief. Number one, allow your failures to be teachable moments with Jesus. We didn't take time to read it, but just before this encounter with the father and his afflicted son was that sublime mountaintop uh, experience, moment of, of Jesus' transfiguration. Peter, James, and John got to be witnesses as the light of heaven touched that holy place and the Son of God had manifested His glory before them. 
So that has just happened. Then keep in mind that the fact that the disciples had already been deputized by Jesus to cast out demons back in Mark chapters 3 and 6, and, and they succeeded at doing it. And when you take into account all that background, it must have been so devastating, disappointing, and confusing for the disciples to experience failure here. So they turn to Jesus and ask, why couldn't we drive it out? I think their question reveals one of the big reasons why they failed. Why couldn't we do it, they say. Their emphasis seems to be on their own professional skill or power. I'm not judging them. In fact, I'm a little relieved because this shows that disciples have struggles like the rest of us. Beset by failure, too ready to engage in arguments, undisciplined in prayer life, and struggle with being more eager to learn techniques than to take time to walk closely with God. But even if the question reveals their struggle with self-reliance, at least they ask the question. The disciples seem sincere, I think, in wanting to learn from their mistakes. They allow their failures to be teachable moment, a teachable moment with Jesus. Thomas Edison came to my mind this week. You know that he uh, filled an impressive 1,093 patents with the U.S. Patent Office. But behind each of those 1,093 successes lay hundreds, sometimes thousands of failures. Edison mastered the art of recovering from failure with lessons in hand and sought to pass it on to his workers. In fact, near the end of his career, a former work, worker, Alfred Tate, penned the following letter to his former boss. Above all, he said, you taught me to not be afraid of failure, that scars are sometimes as honorable as medals. Boy, of all the things I could ask Jesus to teach me, I probably wouldn't request, first of all, teach me to not be afraid of failure, Jesus. Or especially, teach me that the scars can be just as honorable as the achievements. I would probably ask, Jesus, teach me how to make the ministry succeed. Teach me how to, to reach people more effectively for your kingdom. Teach me how to better extend your love and grace to others. When I reflect on my life and ministry, I realize that it has often been through my failures that Jesus has taught me how to make ministry more successful, how to reach people more effectively, how to extend his love and grace better. And I have also found that my faith was often strengthened more so when Jesus worked to bring about something good through my failures. If you're looking for help with your unbelief, let your failures become teachable moments with Jesus. Way number two, be real about your unbelief with Jesus. How difficult this father's faith struggles must have been. His son, his only son, had horrific afflictions which are described by Mark in 
graphic detail here. He is a mute and deaf and, and, and racked by, by seizures that dash him to the ground and cause him to foam at the mouth and grind his teeth and make him as stiff as a board. Modern medicine's diagnosis would be epilepsy. But the text is also clear that this boy was also possessed by an evil spirit. We learn that ever since he was a boy, the demon had thrown him into fires and water to try to kill him. Can you imagine what a challenge this must have been? The father couldn't leave his son alone for a minute. Who knew when the next attack would come? He had to remain on call, on alert, 24 hours a day. He was desperate and tired, and his appeal to Jesus reflects both of those realities. If you can do anything for him, please have pity on us. Help us. Listen to that request. Does that sound courageous, confident, strong? Hardly. And did you notice the father said, if? The Greek is even more emphatic because the tense of the word there implies doubt. His appeal is more meek than might, more timid than towering. But at least it's honest. Then Jesus is like, did you just say if? (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Let me remind you, everything is possible for one who believes in me. Immediately, the text says, the father replies, I believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. No pretending, no boasting, no posturing, just more honesty. I believe Jesus, but at the same time, I don't. Help me. You know, the father's pain and struggles have immediacy for our contemporary context. He is like so many parents today who have experienced anguish, frustration, and exhaustion as they've had to watch their child suffer from some malignant disease or get caught in the grip of some addiction or face a fierce spiritual battle. And those circumstances can leave you crying out for help as your faith feels like it's just hanging by just a thread. Well, the good news is, even after admitted unbelief, Jesus does bring help. He drives out the evil spirit, brings healing to the boy. And don't miss the resurrection language that Mark uses here. The boy looks to be dead, the crowd uh, comments, but Jesus lifted him to his feet and the boy stood up. In the Greek, those two phrases are literally saying, he raised him, he was raised. Here we get another glimpse from Jesus of the ultimate restoration and healing that he will one day bring. Maybe there's a lesson in there for us. Maybe the lesson is you don't overcome your doubts by denying them, but by sharing them with Jesus. Maybe the lesson is rather than thinking we just need more faith, bigger faith, 
to get through what we're facing, we need to start with allowing God to work with the faith we still have, even if it's hanging by a thread. Maybe the lesson is to remember that no matter what suffering we face here, Jesus is bringing ultimate victory and restoration. All these lessons here show me that God can really help when we get real with him. And now we come to the third way. The third way we can allow Jesus to help our unbelief. Prayer. Everything in this story seems to hinge on prayer, doesn't it? The Father's honest and simple prayer, Lord, I believe, help, my, help me overcome my unbelief, makes all the difference. And then the disciples' lack of prayer kept them from making any difference. And when they asked Jesus why we can't drive out the evil spirit, Jesus plainly says, this kind of evil spirit can only come out by prayer. Maybe the disciples were too busy arguing among themselves and their opponents to pray. Maybe their minds were still distracted by the glorious transfiguration they just witnessed. Maybe they were overwhelmed with questions and discouragement from Jesus' revelation that he would have to suffer and die. Whatever the distractions were, the disciples failed to prepare for their ministry in the most important way they could prepare for it. Prayer. And since Jesus does not offer up here a prayer to exercise the evil spirit, I don't think that Jesus has in his mind some magical invocation or pious exercise that we do right before the event, but rather he has in mind a life of prayer that flows from a close and enduring relationship with God. Jesus modeled this type of prayer life, did he not? In Mark chapter 1, he gets up early in the morning. It's still dark to find a secluded place to pray with his father. In Luke chapter 6, we see Jesus going off in the mountain, spending the whole night in prayer. In Matthew 14, he sends the crowds away so that he can have some alone time on that mountain to pray with his father. Jesus lived a life of prayer. And he's trying to get the disciples to learn here what we also need to learn, that a life of prayer goes hand in hand with effective ministry. One cannot get ready for the moment by quickly uttering a special prayer. One has to be ready through a prayerful life when the moment comes. I had a teacher in seminary. His name was Joseph Kidder. Some of you may have heard of him. In fact, I've shared a few stories, I think, already from some of the classes I had with him since I've been here at Calamesa. Uh, they impacted me greatly. And one such class was on the topic of prayer. He told us of one of the churches he pastored early on in his ministry. And I'd like to read that story to you in his own words. It's a little long, but I think it's worth hearing in its entirety. One of the churches that I pastored had at one time 80 members, but they had a great vision. 
they met together one day and decided they would like to have a structure that would seat 600 people. During the next few years, the congregation grew to about 100 in attendance, and it started to prepare their dream church. But in the process of designing the new building, they began fighting, and the attendance dropped to about 40 and stayed there for one year. That's when I arrived to be their pastor. I accepted the invitation to this church because I wanted to be a church growth expert. At that time, I was working on my doctoral degree in leadership and church development. I used all the things I had learned, implementing the strategies, plans, and programs for my classes and seminars. For three and a half years, I employed every technique I knew, working 60 to 80 hours every week. My wife, in fact, joined me 30 to 40 hours every week, too. Then something unusual happened. After three and a half years of intense effort, cutting-edge methods, the attendance went from 40 to 30. I had become a church decline expert. After my church declined from 40 to 30 attendees, I decided to quit the ministry altogether and go back to my career of engineering. I will make more money and will have my weekends off and I won't have to deal with difficult people, I thought. I typed my letter of resignation on my computer and as I finished, the doorbell rang. When I went to the door, my wife happened across the letter and later asked me why I wanted to leave pastoral ministry. It's very simple, I explained. I have calculated that if the current trend continues, in three and a half years, there will be only you and I left in the church. I don't want that to happen. I want an honorable exit, as honorable as it can be. My wife looked at me and said simply, Joseph, have you been praying for your church? I thought that was a bit judgmental and harsh. I started to defend myself, but pretty soon I had lost the argument because deep inside I had to admit that I was more into strategic planning and programming than into prayer and spirituality. With the encouragement of my wife, I decided to spend one day a week in prayer and fasting. I was supposed to eat my last meal on Sunday night and go to the church and spend all of Monday in prayer. That first Monday morning, my wife said to me as I was leaving, pray as if your life depends on it. I told her I didn't know what that meant, but I was sure going to do my best. Entering the church, I knelt down in front of one of the pews to pray for the family that sat on it. After two minutes of prayer, I found myself sound asleep. In fact, I slept eight hours that day. Ordinarily, I never sleep during the day, but my attempt at prayer seemed to change all that. My biggest challenge that day was knowing what to tell my wife when I got home. She asked how it went, and I mumbled something about, "Mm, great, and in my heart I added for the two minutes that it lasted. But with her encouragement, I kept at it. The next week, I spent three minutes in prayer. The next week, four, then down to three, then up to five. It was then that I made the most important spiritual discovery of my life. I was the greatest challenge to my spirituality. Not the distraction of the internet or the radio or TV or sports. I found that I wasn't wired to do this. Give me a program or a strategy or something to do and I would do it. Spirituality is about two things that are completely contrary to our culture and values and worldviews and nature. 
It involves a submissive life and a connectedness with God. My wife, she continued her encouragement, and I and my commitment continued on. I will keep doing it, even if it kills me, I said. Luckily, it didn't kill me. As time passed, things in my life started to change. An amazing thing happened. For eight months, I continued this prayer effort. And the first few weeks of determination and struggle eventually turned into joy and peace. In my newfound enthusiasm, I started to look for additional ways to incorporate prayer in my life and and practiced one hour of prayer as I walked every day. I began to be filled with hope and optimism. My preaching and ministry became more effective. The discipline of prayer was changing me. Then one Sabbath, as I preached from the pulpit, I saw the same faithful 30 plus four more, a husband, wife, and their two little daughters. They must be from out of town, I thought to myself. I didn't consider that they might be seekers. At the time, our church was so depressing, I would have, I would have not attended it myself except for the fact that I was the pastor. Greeting them at the door, I asked them if they were visiting in the area. He said that they lived across the street. Now I was dying to know why they were there. I fished up in Alaska, and my boss up there used to be an Adventist, the man told me. Every evening, he'd gather the crew and talk about his philosophy of life. In one of those sessions, he told us, if you ever go to church, make sure you go to a Seventh-day Adventist church. They have the truth, he said. When this man returned home, he forgot what his employer had said about the church, and life went on as before. But one day, his wife said to him, Look, we have two daughters, and we need to take them to church. I used to go to the Catholic church. Let's go back. And I said, no, we can't go to a different church. My boss told me that we have to go to an Adventist church or no church. She said she didn't care which one they went to as long as it was a church. So there they were on Sabbath morning in my congregation. They were hungry for God. I studied the Bible with them twice a week and two months later baptized them. When I baptized them, I dedicated the sermon to them. And as I shared their story, I shared my story too. I told my congregation about my struggle with prayer and how I used to come into the church and pray for them. I told them how I prayed that God would send me someone to baptize. The God of the whole universe was listening to the prayers of a discouraged pastor in the middle of a nowhere town in the state of Washington. And he gave me this couple. As soon as I said this, a 69-year-old man stood up, came to the front, and started to cry. I have four grown children, he told the whole congregation, and all of them are far from the Lord. But if God answered the prayers of Pastor Joe and gave him this family, I know that he can also answer my prayer and give me my children and their families. I'm going to pray for them day and night. I want you to pray for them and for me. Hold me accountable. Remind me that God answers prayer. As soon as this man finished, a woman from the other side of the room shared a similar conviction. During that one Sabbath morning, more than 10 people gave similar testimonies. It started a movement of prayer that spread like wildfire. People started to pray before, during, And after church, during the week and on the weekends, they prayed individually and in groups, but always with passion. 
eight years later, that church had grown from 30 defeated people to about 500 fully devoted followers of Jesus. Those 30 people without purpose became 500 people who turned their city upside down. And they went from 30 people who came to church out of obligation to 500 who met to worship God and give Him glory. God did an awesome thing. All the church growth strategies that I implemented did not work. But prayer transformed my life and that of our congregation. I remember feeling so inspired as I sat in his class listening to this story. And when I arrived at the church that I was pastoring after seminary, I scheduled time to pray in the pews of my church just like he did. Once a week, dedicated hours to doing this. I, I resurrected the prayer meeting in that church that had been non-existent for years. And we got together and we didn't do anything else but pray. I was so committed to focusing on prayer. And then things got busy. Challenges arose. A major remodel of our church sanctuary and Sabbath school wing got started and it consumed the bulk of my time. And before I knew it, I went from having a life of prayer to being a pastor who mostly prayed when he had to write a sermon or when a member needed prayer for a crisis. And family, when I first arrived here at Calamesa, a new church that was four times the size of my previous one that had a staff of pastors that had a, a, a K through 12 school connected with it. I knew I desperately needed to prioritize prayer again. And for the first few months, for the first time in a long time, I did just that. I would go into the sanctuary here for a few hours each week and kneel in the pews to pray for you. I didn't know where any of you usually sit. I still don't. <laughs> Hopefully, I will learn that someday. But God knew. And I'm, I would ask him to bless whoever usually sits here, to strengthen them, to heal them, to, to lead them, to give me wisdom on how to know how to serve them. I'd pray for my staff. I'd pray for our elders. I'd pray for our ministry leaders. I'd pray for our church board members. And even though I wasn't able to connect with you very much in person, it felt like I was connecting with you. And that God was working because I was praying. And then, church family, things got busy. Challenges arose. Different projects came into view. We had to make constant adjustments to ministry because of COVID. And before I knew it, I went from having a life of prayer to being a pastor who mostly prayed when he had to write a sermon when someone needed to pray for a member in crisis. I want to ask you, family, for your forgiveness, for not prioritizing prayer like I should. And I want you to know that today I am committing to not just be a pastor who, pray, who prays, but a person who lives a life of prayer. And I invite you to make that commitment with me. In fact, if you're looking for a way to start that life of prayer commitment, there's something awesome that we do here at Calamasa Church. 
It's called DEEP. It stands for Drop Everything and Pray. We encourage you to do that at 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. each day. We remind you about it in our newsletter. We've done it here for many years. You can set a reminder on your phone. It's something you can do while you're in class, at work, while you're on your commute. It's just one way we can be intentional in living a life of prayer together as a church family. But there's other ways. Other ways you can find to not just have prayer be a luxury you do when you have time, but you make time to do it because your life is all about prayer. Well, family, if you ever struggle with doubt, I hope you have found encouragement today knowing that you are in good company. The disciples, they struggled with that. This faithful father struggled with that. Take courage knowing that faith and doubt are often experienced at the same time. But I especially hope that you found encouragement knowing that Jesus can help you and I with our unbelief. So let him, let him help you. Let him use your failures as teachable moments. Get real with him about your doubts. And most importantly, live a life of prayer. Treasure. 
Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you so much for this encouraging story that lets us know that those times when we struggle with doubt are not unusual in our faith journey. And Lord, to remember that even when we feel like we only have a little bit of faith left, that we can still come to you. In fact, you invite us to 
You want us to be honest with you about it. Ask for your help to overcome our unbelief. We thank you, Lord, for being willing to work with the little faith that sometimes we still have. Lord, most importantly, I I want to commit along with our church family today, anyone who is listening today, to live a life of prayer. To have a prayer life that flows out of an intimate relationship with you. Because, Lord, that's the only way in which we can succeed in sharing the gospel in the way that you've called us to do it. it. It's the only way, Lord, in which we can actually live the way you have called us, to to do ministry the way you have called us. Thank you, Lord, for this gift of prayer. May we not take it for granted, but center our whole lives around it, starting today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.